The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. The debut of a brand new show, Coastal Conversations with your host Natalie Springle is up next. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations, a new show here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go up beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to, to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine Cooperative Extension, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle, and I hope you will stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. This morning, our topic is ocean acidification, when the chemistry of the ocean changes and how that affects the organisms that live in the ocean and the humans who rely on it to make a living. We are joined today by a bunch of folks who know a whole lot about ocean acidification. We have, uh, we'll have on the line Joe Salisbury, who's a research professor of oceanography and biogeochemistry at the University of New Hampshire. We'll also talk with Bill Mook, who's the owner of Mook Sea Farms out of Walpole. And in the studio, we'll talk with Damian Brady, Brady, who's an assistant professor at the School for Marine Sciences at the Darling Marine Center and the director, assistant director of research at the University of Maine Sea Grant. And finally, we'll also talk with Esperanza Stanshoff, who's a climate change educator for the University of Maine Cooperative Extension and Sea Grant. So I think we have Joe Salisbury on the line. Joe, thanks for joining us. Yeah, you're entirely welcome. And hello, Damien and Esperanza. Hi, Joe. Hey, Joe. Great. It's great to have all of you guys. I know that you guys all know each other because you've been doing a whole lot of research and outreach together on this topic. So we're excited to have all of you. Um, Joe, we, we wanted to start with you because we were hoping that you could, you could start with the basics. I think a lot of folks who are listening to us today, um, this might be the first time they're hearing about ocean acidification. Maybe not. I know it's been in the news more lately with, for example, a Portland Press-Herald article, I think, just yesterday. Um, but uh, tell us the basics. What is ocean acidification in simple terms? So uh, ocean acidification is the uh, lowering of uh, pH of the uh, surface ocean, and that will uh, propagate throughout the ocean over time. And the primary mechanism for this is um, the dissolution of uh, carbon dioxide um, coming from the atmosphere into the surface ocean. The surface ocean is uh, um, uh, will dissolve a tremendous amount of um, carbon dioxide. It's easily dissolved, and when the when the pressure, what we call the partial pressure of the atmosphere, um, gets higher in carbon dioxide than partial pressure of the uh, surface ocean, then that will dissolve. Uh, that will kind of scoot into the into the ocean, and it will uh, go through a process of um, what we uh, call dissociation. 
and in effect uh, lowering the uh, the pH. And that's it. That's basically it in a nutshell. And, and so, so the the uh, the the other thing that's uh, important to say is that our carbon dioxide um, levels of the atmosphere are increasing, and they're increasing rapidly, and they're increasing more rapidly as time goes on. And of course, I think most of your audience would know that the excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is uh, largely attributable to human activities. And you mentioned that um, it lowers the pH of the ocean. And um, for those of us who haven't taken chemistry since maybe the 10th grade, can you remind us what pH measures? So pH is a, is a measure of the uh, uh, hydrogen ion concentration, basically. And hydrogen ions are associated with uh, acidity. And so this is, um, you know, the more hydrogen ions you have in a solution, the more acidic it is. And so acid, of course, you know, most most folks know the concept of acid. It will... Um, you know, it will uh, 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 react with what we call uh, bases and neutralize. And one of the things that it reacts with is uh, um, calcium carbonate, the material that we have in our in our bones. And uh, many of the organisms in the ocean, especially the commercial organisms, are, are shelled organisms. I'm talking about the clams and the oysters and bills here. He's going to talk about about these, but also lobsters um, uh, on in their shells. A small part of their shell is this calcium carbonate, and and um, uh, lowering. Uh, the pH makes it more difficult for these organisms to uh, fix this calcium carbonate. Why is that? Why is that? Well, uh, it's uh, it, it lowering drop in the pH uh, will. So I don't know how technical we want to get here, but lowering the pH will basically drop the concentrations of what we call the carbonate ion, and I use the word calcium carbonate. And so we need to have both of those to um, to fix this uh, shell type material. And if you are dropping the carbonate ion, that it makes an organism either one work harder to fix this calcium carbonate, or uh, it will it might make it so that if it gets low enough, this organism will start to dissolve away. Okay. And how about other organisms in the ocean? Phytoplankton. Fin fish, whales, right. So there's there's been a a, a a lot of research lately, but the uh, the conclusions of this research are just coming out um, now. So so you you mentioned phytoplankton. So plants in the ocean, these may actually benefit from increased carbon uh, dioxide levels uh, in in the ocean. The jury's out on this, but you can imagine if you consider this a nutrient for the plants, they take this up. Then they could uh, they could perhaps prosper, um, uh, maybe not. The jury's out on that. As far as fish are concerned, um, there are other stresses besides uh, uh, stresses to the shell. There are um, you know re- reproductive stresses that a low pH environment may um, uh, uh, you know may encourage. There are also uh, things like olfactory stresses. You know the the uh, the, the sense of smell will differ according to the uh, pH gradient. That's kind of interesting, but there's been a considerable amount of work done on that. As far as whales are concerned, believe it or not, the sound speed 
um, changes quite a bit with what we call the borate chemistry, and this is a function of uh, acidity in the water. So the so the sound speed changes, and so whale communications um, uh, may uh, be interfered with um, as as time goes on. Again, uh, I don't want to pull an alarm on any of this uh, any of this uh, material, but but these are things that we are uh, currently considering. Wow, that's that's fascinating. Um, tell us a little bit about your research. Uh, my research. So I'm a, uh, I study productivity in the ocean and uh, coastal uh, chemical cycling in the ocean. And uh, with uh, colleagues at the University of New Hampshire, I live in Maine, but I work at the University of New Hampshire. Um, we have been uh, we have several observation sites, and a few of them have uh, carbon dioxide. And so what we've been able to uh, document is the seasonality of um, carbon dioxide and pH in the, in the surface ocean. We're trying to understand what causes that variability in the uh, carbon dioxide. So we do see a trend. We've been measuring this for about 10 years, and we see a, a lowering of pH and an increase of uh, carbon dioxide here in the Gulf of Maine. But this is a little bit less than what we have been measuring in the atmosphere, so we don't really understand why that is. Uh, we are also trying to kind of pick apart these seasonal cycles and figure out what processes are contributing to, um, uh, you know, to parts of the uh, seasonal cycle. So we have a biological component. We have a big phytoplankton bloom in the, um, in the springtime. We have this freshwater runoff, which is another subject that uh, maybe we'll get to later in the, in the show, which, um, you know, is p- part of this uh, coastal acidification process. We have uh, a process called upwelling, where, where deeper water will uh, come up to the surface. And uh, we also have this horizontal mixing of this uh, circulation throughout the Gulf of Maine. And all these things change the acidity, and all these contribute to a seasonal cycle. So we need to understand these these processes before we can say, that atmospheric carbon dioxide is changing the uh, acidity of the ocean here. I mean, we, we suspect that it is, but, but what I'm saying is there's so many other factors that we also need to um, understand in a complex coastal zone. It sounds unbelievably complex, um, and you must be working with a huge diversity of different researchers to look at all the different parameters that you're looking at. Yeah, we have great ones. Um, I'm sitting here at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. I want to make sure to give them a plug. Great. They let us use the phone today. There's good researchers here. The University of Maine, Damien's crew is... uh, is starting up some great research. Larry Mayer is there at the Darling Center, and he's he's done some fantastic work. And then, you know, a lot of the science is starting to be done by uh, folks like uh, Bill Mook and, and, and Mark Green, who are actually in the business, but are also able to take measurements uh, for us and, and monitor both the chemistry and the, um, and the biology. Well, that, that sounds like a, a perfect opportunity to hear from Bill. Um, Bill, are you, are you there? Yeah, he's here. Great. So Bill Mook is the owner of Mook Sea Farms, um, which is a shellfish farm, <clears throat> excuse me, down in the Damascata area. Um, Bill, tell us a little bit about your farm before we jump into the role that you've played in teasing out the complexities of ocean acidification. Sure. Um, and hello, and thanks for joining us, by the hello, way. Hello, and uh, thanks thanks for having me on and giving me this chance to talk about this. Um, we've been in business for 30 years on the Damascata River. Um, we're an oyster farm. 
We raise oysters from uh, fertilized egg to market size. We sell uh, little baby oysters called seed, and we also grow uh, oysters all the way to full size and sell them for the half-shell market. Um, and, and essentially, you know, what we've discovered is that uh, hatcheries kind of uh, are the canaries in the coal mine when it comes to ocean acidification. Huh. In what way? Well, uh, it turns out that the uh, w- one of the things that we do a lot of in the hatcheries, we rear the, the uh, oysters through all the very early life stages. And it turns out that larvae are, are really the most vulnerable form of the or life stage of the of the oyster because the larval shell is made out of uh, a form of calcium carbonate called aragonite, which is much more soluble than the the form of the shell uh, that they make as an adult, uh, which is called calcite. So, and by um, soluble, you mean more easily dissolved in correct, water? Correct. Okay. Exactly. And that and that of course makes the larvae the most vulnerable. Uh, you know, to, to ocean acidification or coastal acidification. And, and I could also explain that, you know, the, the larval, what happens is you fertilize the oyster eggs, and uh, those eggs develop within 24 hours or so into a very tiny uh, swimming larva that stays swimming in the water for about 14 to 16 days. And, uh, and essentially what we began seeing probably sometime after 2006 or so, we began to notice more and more times when we would fertilize the eggs that those eggs would not convert to these larvae. Uh, we would just lose them. And that, and that didn't happen all that often, but more often the other thing we saw was that uh, the larvae during this 14 to 16-day larval period would all of a sudden just slow way down in their growth, stop feeding, and the growth would, would stop. And sometimes it would take us up to a week longer or even more, to get those larvae to go through the metamorphosis where they become a juvenile oyster. And you had not seen this kind of change in their cycle before? We, we <laughs> not, I wouldn't say we'd never seen it, but certainly uh, not at, at, the, at the frequency we started to see it. And, and I think the other notable thing to say about that was that uh, we were really able to link these events to um, large runoff events after big rainstorms. Okay, and and that's sort of how we got worried about um, acidification because uh, the fresh water has a lower pH. So so help us understand. So the fresh water comes in. Fresh water is more acidic than seawater. Seawater. Okay. Uh, the, one thing Joe didn't mention is that the pH scale is a little bit counterintuitive because uh, the lower the number, the higher the acidity, and so. Uh, where ocean, open ocean seawater has a pH that's usually a little over 8, uh, rainwater and runoff has a much lower pH. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but it's probably more like maybe Joe, 5 or five or so. So, so essentially you're bringing more hydrogen ions in when you get these big rain events and, and uh, increased um, runoff. Okay, I see. So how did you start figuring out what was happening in your hatchery? Well, we got tipped off, actually. Uh, It turns out, and uh, I don't know if if your viewer or your listeners uh, are aware of this, but the the oyster industry in the Pacific Northwest almost collapsed uh, back uh, starting around 2007, 8, and 9. And, uh, And it turns out in 2009, 
several growers made a trip to uh, Maine and spoke with a number of us in the oyster business, shellfish business, and described what they had finally figured out, which was that um, they were pumping more acidic water into their hatcheries. And it was a different reason for them doing that. But essentially, when they described the symptoms, uh, lights started to go off for us. And that's what kind of started us on the hunt in earnest for uh, trying to figure out whether or not we were uh, having uh, carbonate problems in, in the hatchery. Now, I know that this, that ocean acidification has become uh, a significant enough issue in marine circles that there's a commission, an ocean acidification commission that has been formed and has recently put out a report, I think. And I believe yeah. maybe you, you both are on it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I can. Um, the commission was formed uh, a little, uh, little less than a year ago. And uh, it was formed to. It was formed by the Maine legislature to study existing and potential impacts on uh, commercial, commercially important species in Maine. Uh, we, they wanted us to identify um, uh, monitoring and research that is needed to be able to uh, understand acidification processes better, uh, and and essentially come up with mitigation steps. Ident identify ways that we can sort of lessen the impact. And then also try to figure out um, how best to uh, increase public awareness uh, of acidification. The commission was made up of uh, representatives from the legislature, uh, from the research community, from industry, uh, various state um, uh, departments were represented. And uh, what we did to start with was we formed two subcommittees, one which looked at the report that the state of Washington generated um, uh, as, a, as part of their, they formed a commission before we did, and they had issued their report. So we decided that rather than reinvent the wheel, we would look at what they did, look at the science review they did, and, and try to um, see if any of their work could be useful for us, which it was. And then the second subcommittee was essentially um, a committee that would review the existing state of the science and come up with a report uh, for that. And that report actually is included in the commi full commission report as an appendix, and there's an executive summary of that in, in there as well. Um, and then if you want, I can kind of give you a rundown on the goals and recommendations. Would you like that? Yeah, that would be great. And also if it's available, if it's something that members of the public can take a look at. It is. It actually was just for formally released yesterday. I okay, great. Right, Joe? Uh, and and they, they were waiting to get certain copyright permissions for the state of the science part of it, but that has been obtained and it was released yesterday. And there is a there's a link which uh, Joe I think he's on his computer right now. Maybe he can uh, email you that link uh, for people that you could put on your website so people can go uh, look that report up. Okay. But basically, there were six goals identified, each of which had a bunch of recommendations, and they ranged you know starting with essentially increasing Maine's capacity to monitor and investigate impacts of coastal and ocean acidification on commercial species. Uh, to The second goal was to reduce CO2 emissions, and that involved um, trying to strengthen and, and add to existing. There were a bunch of existing efforts to reduce emissions in, in Maine. Uh, we wanted to increase those and also um, identify new ways, perhaps, uh, you know, encourage economic development of, uh, of new technologies that would uh, provide economic benefit to Maine. 
Um, the third goal was to reduce nutrient and freshwater runoff uh, uh, that may be contributing to the problem in coastal areas. Uh, to, then the fourth goal was to mitigate, remediate, and adapt, and that involved a range of things uh, from preserving and managing microalgal um, uh, areas, you know, with, with my, macroalgae, rather, which takes up carbon dioxide and therefore um, helps reduce uh, ocean acidification. Um, and, the, and also use of shells, for example, uh, to buffer mud flats, things like that. Uh, the fifth was involved uh, recommending that we uh, set a goal to inform and educate public, uh, the public and decision makers about ocean acidification. And then finally, uh, it was felt that we really needed to have a sustained effort in the state, and there was a recommendation to um, form an ocean acidification council that would see this pro process uh, into the future. Great. I, I think that we're taking care of your next to last um, or beginning to take care of that recommendation to inform the public about the issue. So that's, I, that's great. I think so. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we let you guys go, um, I wonder, Bill, if you could just give us a sense of what, what the prognosis for the future is for your industry in light of what you've been discovering about well, ocean Well, that, in fact, is the big question. And I think one of the things that we realized that through the, our activities on the commission was that we really don't know the answer to that. We need to do a lot of research and monitoring to start to piece that together. And I think the question is, is this a you know, if you want to use a human illness as a, as a metaphor or analogy, you know, do, do, um, is this a chronic illness that we're going to just be trying to manage uh, as we go forward, you know, for the rest of our lives? Or is it a, is it a you know, a, a, a terminal illness that's going to, to, to wipe us out quickly? And I, I just don't think we know the answer to that. Um, there are a lot of parts to that, um, you know, in terms of how we go about trying to figure it out. And I think, some of what Damien may be talking about later will uh, will speak to that in terms of the modeling. Um, we need to understand more. We're in a, in a part of the country where freshwater runoff and and rainfall precipitation amounts are increasing with time, and it's a rather dramatic increase. It's been a 76 percent increase or 74 percent increase in heavy precipitation events over the last 50 years in in uh, New England, and. So we need to know what the, what the future modeling for that is and then start modeling uh, coastal areas to figure out um, what actually is going to be going on with the carbonate chemistry. And then on top of that, which is a complex enough problem, you have to try to figure out how all these things are going to affect very complex ecosystems. So we just don't know the answer for the prognosis question. Okay, a lot of unknowns. It sounds like it's it's really in the beginning stages of, of research. So. Very much so. Great. Well, thank it, you. It really is a new area of scientific inquiry. The first impact papers on organisms is are, you know are only barely ten years old. Yeah, that's very new. Um, okay. Well, thanks. We will. Um, We'll let you guys go, and we'll continue the conversation here. Um, thank you so much to Joe Salisbury, a research professor uh, of oceanography and biogeochemistry at the University of New Hampshire, and also thanks to Bill Mook from Mook Sea Farms um, for helping us understand the basics of ocean acidification. Thank you.
Um, so I just wanted to remind listeners that you're listening to a brand new show on WERU. This is Coastal Conversations, um, airing each fourth Friday of the month at 10 to 11 a.m. Um, in the studio today, we're talking about ocean acidification. Um, and we are going to hear now from Damian Brady, who is the assistant professor who is an assistant professor at the School for Marine Sciences at the University of Maine's Darling Marine Center and also the assistant director of research at the University of Maine Sea Grant. And we also have Esperanza Stansioff, who's a climate change educator with the University of Maine Cooperative Extension and Sea Grant. Um, we just heard a lot about the science of ocean acidification. Um, and so let's, let's go there a little bit more. Um, Damien, um, welcome to the show. Thank you, Natalie. Um, Damien, tell us a little bit about what you do. What is your research area? Yeah, so <clears throat> as Bill uh, referred to a little bit, uh, I'm interested in modeling. So these are sort of numerical models of how estuaries and coastal zones work. Um, you can sort of think of them as virtual labs where we can explore, uh, you know, a multitude of things that are changing. I think that Bill and Joe referred to, you know, because you have changing temperatures, changing precipitation, how much rain and um, runoff are coming into uh, these areas. And then, of course, you've got uh, changes in the land use um, in Maine that are all occurring sort of simultaneously and over time. So we use these sort of virtual um, models uh, of how these systems work to try to figure out how they're going to change in the future. Great. Thank you. And Esperanza, welcome to the program. Um, tell us a little bit about your work. What is a climate change educator? Thank you, Natalie. Um, well, um, I'm engaged in a lot of different projects, ocean acidification, outreach, um, education, and research being one of them. Um, so I primarily work in communities with um, uh, different ways that they might need support and uh, working together with researchers and bringing them into communities as well to try to determine solutions for climate change adaptation. Great. Um, I wanted to ask you, Esperanza, something that um, I think it was Bill referred to. He said, if I got it right, um, he said that something like 74%, there's been a 74% increase in storms in the last 50 years, if I got that right. Um, tell us a little bit about those kinds of numbers, not necessarily the specific statistics, but what that means and, and why does it impact, um, why does the fresh water coming out of the sky impact the ocean? Right. Well, there's a lot of different ways that that uh, impacts uh, marine resources, uh, just to, to uh, talk about that, and, and how it uh, increases ocean acidification. And Increased nutrient loading from a lot more freshwater runoff, so the nutrients like from septic system failures and uh, perhaps illicit connections and, you know, any type of, um, of nutrients from our pollutants, basically, that um, come with that, that extreme rain events that are happening more and more. Um, and those will cause the increase, for example, in algal blooms, which then with die-off, uh, create a hypoxic condition or less oxygen. But also, which is uh, less known, is the consequences of that can also be a lowered pH and, um, and the production of carbon dioxide increased, basically, and then lowering of pH. So. so we're seeing more storms, we're seeing more rainfall events, and in... Uh, 
and that is, in the end, contributing to increased acidification. Yes, and lower uh, salinity. You know, there's all the different mm-hmm. types of uh, combinations of effects that will create problems for organisms. I mean, primary productivity is also another issue, which uh, researchers at Bigelow are working on, Barney Balch, um, primarily, and Meredith uh, White. And so those are other factors that come into it that that create issues for marine organisms and for uh, unhealthy conditions. So many factors. The ocean is just an incredibly complex environment. so that's where you come in, Damien, because you are the modeler. Um, well, you, I, you I try just, to incorporate the factors. Or before we go there, go, what, what were you? Yeah, say? I, I, the, yeah. The ocean is a very, very complex place. Um, I don't think anyone would deny that. Um, but you know, one of the ways we can think of this is the sources of acidity can can broadly in our coastal zone come from sort of three different sources. So they can be internally produced by respiration. So breathing in, breathing out uh, causes CO2 to come into the water in the same way that higher CO2 in the air getting into the water causes acidity. Uh, So that can happen internally in the system. So the um, algal material that gets respired by the system causes more CO2. So the the whole ecosystem is breathing. Uh, So that's sort of naturally produced CO2 that's in the system internally being produced. Then there's a source of acidity from this fresh water that we talked about. And then there's, in our coastal zone, there's a source of acidity from the ocean. So you can sort of think of these three sources. Um, This freshwater side bringing in more acidic water because, as uh, Joe said on the phone there, the the runoff can be as low as 5 on the pH scale. And if you think of 7 as being neutral from your high school chemistry days, then you're throwing 5 – um, pH water into the system. So that's lowering the pH of the of the coastal zone. Then you have the ocean water, which used to be a source of high pH water that is lowering in pH over time. And then you have the internal dynamics and, and how the system works and, and how it breathes. Um, so if we think of those three sources, what we try to do on the modeling side and, and what we try to do in terms of understanding when and where low pH is going to be a problem, we try to balance these three sources and, and disentangle what, what's really causing the acidity in the coastal zone. How, what are some other arenas where um, you've had s- interesting results using models like, like this? Yeah, so I think that the, one of the themes we've heard today so far is that this is very new, um, uh, at least relatively so. Um, but there are models that we can look to. It's a, it's a little bit like climate change when we think about, you know, how do we solve large global climate change issues? A lot of people will point to uh, ozone. Um, for instance, and um, uh, our ability to uh, to fix, uh, which I'm using air quotes right now here, but uh, fix the ozone layer problem. Um, there are models that are similar to coastal acidification or ocean acidification. So one of them is one that Esperanza just brought on, uh, uh, spoke about, which is nutrients that come from the land into the water. They cause something called eutrophication, which is just too many nutrients in the water. So it's just like over-fertilizing your lawn, for instance. It causes a lot of plant material to sink, and then it causes what what's known in the public as dead zones. So there's very famous dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico and the Chesapeake Bay. This is where the bottom uh, layer of a lot of these coastal zones are uh, bereft of oxygen, so they're hypoxic or anoxic. And so what we've done in the past is we've used models to figure out what the nutrient load, so how many nutrients are coming in from the land, how they grow algae, sink, and cause these dead zones. And then we use those models to inform how much we need to decrease nutrients in order to solve the problem. 
Uh, so that's the okay. that's the maybe one of the best models for how we might start to think about managing um, coastal acidification mm-hmm. in the future. Okay, great. Um, I just wanted to let listeners know that you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio. Our topic today for our first show in this new program um, is ocean acidification. And in the studio with me today, I have Damian Brady from the University of Maine and Esperanza Stancioff, also from the University of Maine. Um, And we are going to open it up for your calls. If you have any questions, comments, concerns um, for these guys in the studio related to ocean acidification, the chemistry of the ocean, and um, how our actions may or may not impact it, anything at all, feel free to give us a call um, at 1-866-625-9378, 1-866-625-WERU. Esperanza, tell us a little bit about what's already been happening in terms of citizens and businesses and stakeholders and decision makers becoming involved in this conversation. Well, I would like to focus on on one group, but I'd also like to point out that there are a lot of partners uh, in Maine, and Maine is essentially Maine is essentially the 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 first um, East Coast state that really started uh, thinking about this and having a lot of different uh, forums and conferences and meetings uh, about this. And um, I have to bring in, uh, need to bring in our partners, Island Institute is is being really key also. Um, And just so listeners know, we did invite somebody from the Island Institute to join us on the call today, but they were not available, unfortunately. So that's been happening. And alongside that, for the past year, we have uh, developed a network called the Northeast Coastal Acidification Network. This is uh, a group of, uh, well, you, you, you heard from two of the steering committee members, and uh, we have 10 from around the uh, region of NECAN. Um, so NECAN is, is Northeast Coastal Acidification Network. Correct. And uh, our region is goes from Long Island Sound all the way to Canada. Um, so we're focused on the different uh, subregions, and the Gulf of Maine being one of those. And um, so NECAN is, is implementing a multi-step process to synthesize regional ocean acidification science, communicate it to regional stakeholders, and solicit user input to the design of a northeast coastal acidification network. So really understanding the science of coastal and ocean acidification, engaging stakeholders in that process, and then coming up with um, a state of the science synthesis, translating that, having that stakeholder input through workshops throughout the region where we plan to have five of those, and um, and then come up with an implementation plan with working groups uh, of citizens and uh, stakeholders that can then... Um, you know, help us with that. So that's it in a nutshell, and I can talk more about that. Great. Let's hold off on that and take a call. I think we have David in Brooklyn on the line. David, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, and thanks for the show. Uh, It, I think, promises to be really an important show for me and my listening pattern. Thank you. I'm glad you're putting it on. Great. Uh, I've been listening to the acidification uh, discussion, and I uh, am a, uh, a, a, quite a while ago, I moved up here from the uh, the upper watershed of the uh, Chesapeake Bay, and uh, even at the time when I moved, uh, 
major uh, sources of uh, uh, pollution was the agribusiness farming that was going on uh, even so far away as Pennsylvania. Uh, We were growing a lot of corn around where I was living, and it would be monocropped year after year after year and produced by heavy application of, of nitrogen fertilizer, and uh, a lot of that ended up in the uh, in the bay, of course. And I wonder uh, how much a part of the research that's going on up here uh, might also have to do with farming methods. I'm uh, a small-scale biodynamic farmer uh, uh, in intention, at least, and um, uh, I see that small-scale uh, farming, which makes heavy use of composting technique, uh, can really uh, uh, offset the, uh, the nitrate leaching, which happens from the earth, uh, which is a good thing for farming and also for the health of the ocean. So just uh, I was curious about the relation between the, the shore and the, and the, the land and, and that uh, David, uh, really good question. Um, uh, I think that, uh, so what happens in terms of nutrient runoff from farms, but also from urban and suburban areas, is a lot of that, you know, for the most part in the coastal zone, um, a lot of the productivity is limited by nitrogen. So nitrogen comes off the shores and into our waters, and that is fertilizer in the water, just like it's fertilizer on land. Um, and so generally in the Chesapeake Bay, for instance, if that algal material sinks to the bottom of the Chesapeake Bay, you get more respiration of that material because it's in the dark, then you have photosynthesis. So if we think back again on our high school biology, the uh, photosynthesizers, are, uh, photosynthesizers are creating oxygen. And when we get respiration, we're creating carbon dioxide, which will decrease the acidity. So um, any time where you essentially uh, uncouple uh, respiration from photosynthesis in the coastal zone, we can create more uh, essentially acidity in that area. You can sort of think of it uh-huh. that way. Um, and it, when it comes to Maine, um, of course, we don't have nearly the nitrogen load, for instance, that the Chesapeake Bay watershed might have. Um, uh, and we also have in this state uh, versus other places, we have a, a, a macro tide, which um, uh, allows for a lot of mixing to occur. Uh, so we don't have a, 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 what we call like a two-layer water system in, in most estuaries where it sort of sinks and causes a lot of problems. Um, you know, that having been said, you know, there, I think there's a role for all sorts of um, uh, land uses to think about uh, how they might be affecting the, the downstream watersheds. Um, you know, agriculture has a role, but, you know, definitely combined sewer overflows in Portland to suburban, uh, you know, your lawn, for instance. So I think that there's a, there is a role for, for everyone, but, I, you know, I, we wouldn't pin acidification, for instance, in Maine on, on, those, types of, uh, on those types of issues, you know, in particular. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think also that agriculture in Maine is um, is not uh, that big along the coast uh, as it used to be at one time. Um, I also think that septic systems are a much bigger uh, problem than um, almost anything else with nutrient loading. Uh, we don't have, uh, you know, uh, scheduled maintenance required in this state for 
um, for maintenance of septic systems. It's It's been a problem. And in the 20 years that I worked on water quality issues and we were actually looking for those pollution sources, it was almost always um, a failing septic system or an illicit pipe somewhere. So, um, of course, those are... Um, those days are, are gone for me, but uh, that's what we were finding at that time. David, does that does that help sort of address what you were wondering about? I think it must. <laughs> Thank you, David. That was a that was a great question, and it hits right on sort of some of the bigger questions that I've had about this issue, which is um, what what can we what can we do about it? Um, what can we do about it? Well, I, I certainly believe that education and awareness is the first step, and uh, that's a lot of what uh, many of the groups are trying to do here in Maine, as well as our, our NECAN, our Northeast Coastal Acidification Network. So bringing people to the table, having these discussions, learning about um, what the sensitive areas are, where we should be providing uh, more monitoring and research, um, where what kinds of products uh, we need to develop that can create better awareness and education, um, and those types of things. I can go on later about that. <laughs> Great, thanks. Um, I think we have another caller. I think we have Sid from Appleton on the line, and I think this might be my old friend Sid. Hi, Sid. Hi, Natalie. Thanks for... Thanks for doing this show. It's great. Great, great. Glad to have you on the line. We'll have to catch up soon someday. But right now... I have a question. Great. Um, about the precipitation. I don't think that you guys mean that the actual total precipitation is up by 73%. I think what you mean is uh, the extreme storm events. So could somebody explain that and then explain how it is that that is affecting the... Um, the ocean, uh, the near coastal area, differently than what was here before. Great. Thanks. Thanks for the clarification, Sid. Damien, what do we actually mean? So that's a number that Bill quoted. Um, it comes from the National Weather Service. Um, and uh, I believe that the real statistic is a 73%, and Sid's correct, it's a 73% increase in the top 1% of storms. So we can think of it as um, the, you know, the five-year storm is now the two-and-a-half-year storm. Um, or uh, the, So we have an increase in the number of deluges, you know, for instance. Um, and so uh, the, there's a multitude of things that can happen when you have an, uh, an increase in extreme events. Um, and I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't dare say that we know exactly how that has changed things within our estuaries over that time. Um, but, you know, for instance, these deluges can dislodge a lot more particulates and, and stuff from the land and put it into the water. Um, and it can also have a larger effect on salinity, these sort of plug, uh, you know, plug freshwater flows into our estuaries that um, are, uh, that can overwhelm dams, they overwhelm combined sewer overflows quicker. Um, you know, if it's a slow rainfall, for instance, or it's drawn out over time, then a lot of our treatment plants can take care of a lot of that stuff. Um, so there, there's a multitude of things that happen, but Sid's right. I, I, we don't want to give the impression that there's been a 73% increase in precipitation, but a 73% increase in the top 1% of storms over the last century is, I believe, what the, the, the real statistic is from the National Weather Service. Great. Thanks very much. Thank you, Sid. That, that, I'm, I'm glad we caught that. That's a good clarification. Um, the other day I was 
telling a, a few friends about this upcoming show, and they asked me some great questions that I'm going to put to you guys because I think that they're, um, for folks who know nothing about ocean acidification, I was asked, um, does that mean the water is getting, we have to be concerned about swimming? Um, and uh, these kinds of sort of really kind of public health kinds of concerns. Is, is that where we're heading with acidification? Help us, help us get rid of the myths. Well, I think as far as uh, swimming uh, in the ocean, uh, we have uh, we already have the issues uh, upon us with uh, the nutrients coming in and uh, you know bacterial pollution um, from you know dog waste and septic system malfunction and all the things that we've been talking about that um, are already here as a problem. I don't. I would re- defer to. Uh, to Damien to to talk about the ocean acidification issue, I I think that the things that are causing coastal acidification are the things that 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 you know the different components that we should be worried about as far as public health goes. Um, as far as ocean acidification, <coughs> I don't know. It would take you know um, I, I I don't know that the answer to that specifically. Yeah, I don't think that uh, on any level anyone should be afraid to go swimming, for instance. I mean, so, uh, you know, the the way I like to think of this is, uh, you know, the, I believe that uh, Bill quoted that the typical ocean pH is around 8, a little bit above 8. Um, uh, even worst case climate projections, maybe it gets down to, uh, because the, the pH scale is also a logarithmic scale, so it's huge changes in the ocean um, uh, chemistry for small changes in that unit that you hear. So 8, you know, down to 7.9 is a really big change in uh, in the ocean chemistry. So um, I don't think we'll ever be getting to, uh, to pHs that you might be concerned about you know, uh, uh, swimming in, for instance. So I, I don't think it's a public health issue by itself, no. Right. Not by itself. The, the, the issue is that some of the drivers of acidification are the similar issues that we need to pay attention to in terms of water quality. Thank, thanks for that clarification. Um, I think we have another caller. I think we have Beatty, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, in yeah. Camden. That's right. Um, I probably mentioned this before, and it sounds quite frivolous, but uh, as far as the, the storms that are washing things out and being expensive for municipalities and affecting um, freshwater quality, uh, and I don't know if this would affect the saltwater and acidification, but my frivolous suggestion is beavers, that um, they slow down the water just as forests do, and we really need to think about land managed that way and, and think about beavers management. This is happening out west where they need the water more. And uh, I don't know whether we take it into account, but they do make places where the water slows down. That That's an, an interesting idea. So using beavers to help manage the water flow. Yeah. Damien, yeah. what do you well, think? No, that's, that's not a frivolous uh, um, uh, statement at all, I don't think. Uh, <clears throat> You know, for instance, I've uh, a couple of times the Chesapeake Bay is brought up, and there are a lot of really interesting studies that show the sort of loss of beaver population coinciding with the beginning of water quality loss. And it's not necessarily about beavers by themselves. I think it's um, uh, and BD remarks on it um, correctly. It's about slowing water down in the watershed, for instance, and allowing the um, uh, the sort of natural watershed processes. The biggest one being something called denitrification. If you sort of break that word down. It just means getting rid of nitrogen. 
um, and allowing the land to get rid of nitrogen before it reaches the water. But it's the same with salt marshes. It's the same with wastewater treatment plants, even dams. Um, they all have a role in sort of processing the water before it reaches the coastal zone. Um, so, I, you know, it's part of a broader strategy in a lot of places to think about slowing the water system down before it reaches the coastal zone. Interesting. Thank you, Beatty. That's a, that's a great question. Sometimes the the frivolous and and outlandish ideas are are where we might find solutions. Thanks for your call. <clears throat> um, I have another question for you guys. That's in the category of um, folks stuff. Folks asked me a couple days ago that I, I just didn't know how to answer. Um, so if cold water is more acidic, um, then is warming water. A good thing for ocean acidification with water temperatures warming because of climate change? Um, so it's, uh, uh, I was discussing uh, this issue with a colleague of mine, Larry Mayer, who's on that OA um, commission. And, um, it, you know, it sort of depends on why the water's warming. If the water's warming because there's increased carbon dioxide, in the atmosphere that's causing um, increased uh, um, air temperatures that, you know, makes its way into the ocean, um, heat transfer into the ocean, then the effect of carbon dioxide will so um, far uh, outstrip the, you know, sort of positive pH effects of warming water that, um, uh, so I, th you know, Joe Salisbury does a lot of these calculations, but that the, the reason for the warming will sort of outstrip and, and cover up any benefit you might get from warming water over time. Well, you also have these algal blooms occurring more frequently and you get that biomass and same problem that we talked about earlier. So that's, you know, so the warming water triggers more algal blooms, and then that's a driver of of more carbon dioxide again, and okay. um, and then uh, those hypoxic conditions, and and also lower pH. Yeah. So warming water, you can think of it again as I was saying. You know, our coastal zone breathes just the way we do, um, and warming temperatures can sort of cause it to, you know, sort of hyperventilate. You get more respiration mm -hmm. at higher temperatures. So, and it depends on where you are. So as we move out into the open ocean where it's a little less productive, um, then you get the, uh, uh, um, this outstripping of carbon dioxide coming into the water, overwhelming anything that happened with warming water. And as you move inshore and you start getting a more productive system because all this stuff's coming off the land, then you start to hyperventilate. So the overall effect of warming water is probably not a positive on, on pH. Mm -hmm. I think this is also um, points out very clearly the huge differences in coastal acidification mm -hmm. and ocean acidification, open ocean versus coastal processes. And I think that's something that um, people coming into our stakeholder workshops didn't really have a very uh, very much of an understanding about. And I think it's it's part of that beginning education and awareness about how different it is when you get near the coast and how much more complicated and how much more dire the situation can be. So closer to the coast is um, more, uh, I'm generalizing here, is generally more acidic than out in the open ocean or well, it has more conditions coming with more it, factors. That more factors that can create um, higher uh, acidification mm -hmm. than open ocean because it's, it becomes 
less of a buffer than what it you know it might be out in the ocean and i'm sure damien can explain it better <laughs> uh well the way i like to think of it uh um, scott doney he's a guy down at um woods hole he the way he describes it is you know long-term ph records in the open ocean you know you might get variability of of you know 0. 0.1 0. 0.2 0. 0.3 ph units over the course of hundreds of years you can go uh you know uh you can you can do that much in hours in the coastal zone so it's much more dynamic, much more variable in the coastal zone than it is in the uh, open ocean. Interesting. Interesting. How about um, geographically? Say the southern part of the Gulf of Maine, kind of, let's just say, Portland south versus, say, down east, closer to the Bay of Fundy. We don't know. We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the answer. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, there's a the huge gradient in development in what you just mm, mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so the coastal acidification, so that part of uh, coastal acidification that is uh, uh, that is brought on about by the stuff coming off the land into the water, you know, that's going to be a function of the development on the watershed. Um, so that we know is going to sort of change. But there are cold water dynamics. What you just mentioned right now is one of the one of the sharpest latitudinal gradients in temperature in the world. Um, uh, there's a huge change in temperature, you know, as we move from where we are right now up north. So, So Esperanza, you've been involved in a series of stakeholder workshops. Um, who's been involved in those? Who's, who's sort of paying attention to this issue and and what's been the outcome? Um, well, we've just held our first in December. Um, prior to that, we we held our State of the Science uh, workshop. And I want to just go back just a minute to say what feeds into these workshops is the, the science um, and translating that science. And so so we started, you know, this past year and we had all of these uh, webinars and we had wonderful scientists. They've been mentioned today and they've been on our program today. Um, and I And so there's been 16 of them. And so they've offered their expertise in coming together in a two-day state of the science workshop in sort of compiling this information and data and research um, results. And from that, we've we've come brought that into our first stakeholder workshop of five that we're going to hold in Maine. And we, uh, we really targeted and focused on recruiting to that workshop uh, fishermen, lobstermen, um, clam harvesters, aquaculturists, and representatives of those and representatives of water quality groups along the coast who are very becoming even more active um, in looking at things like nutrients. So we wanted to bring these folks together and really have uh, both presentations uh, about the science, but but really delve into asking them questions about, you know, um, their where they have found, have seen sensitive areas or, you know, what they've been experiencing, changes of species in the water, you know, these kinds of things that might not have anything to do with ocean acidification, but certainly changing conditions. And um, and then from there, um, we ask them, you know, what kind of communication tools do they need to share with others, um, with other uh, uh, meetings of opportunity or whatever that they would be engaged in. Um, and also to start putting some of this information from them into an implementation plan and then engaging them further Great. in that plan. And how can people become involved if they would like to to do so? Yes, we have um, we have a listserv. We have a website. Um, it's uh, hosted by Niracus. And um, 
I can give that website. Yeah, why don't you go do that now? Yeah. Um, okay. It's www.niracus, N-E-R-A-C-O-O-S dot org slash NECAN, N-E-C-A-N. Thank you, Esperanza. I think we have time for one quick call. Um, Allison from Brooklyn. Yes, hello. Thank you for a wonderful program. Thank My you. question is whether rockweed harvest has any interaction with ocean acidification that has been measured. That's a great question. What do you guys think? That is a great question, and there are some... Um, so there is definitely a lot of interest in that. I don't believe that we have any results from any research uh, at this point. I, I know that there's also research on eelgrass, which is a very uh, extremely important species uh, for this topic. Um, we we do have a, have other research going on, uh, phenology research about the life cycle uh, changes um, and timing of uh, reproduction of rockweed. Um, and uh, and others that are really interested in this, um, but I don't think there are any results from that. Damien, any quick? Very very quickly, uh, because uh, I think um, <clears throat> Bill mentioned it as one of the recommendations from the OA panel that anytime you're growing plants in the water, you're taking CO two out of the water, which is uh, increasing or sorry decreasing the CO two in the water is is helpful pH wise. And so there has been plans to say um, locally plant macroalgae in different plants in the water in order to to do make a local refuge for for better pH in those in those situations. Great. Thank you. And thank you, Allison, for that great question. Um, We'll have to address it in further detail on another show um, because we've come to the end of our first coastal conversation today. And our topic today was ocean acidification. I'd like to thank our guests for their time and good work. Um, Here in the studio, we had Damian Brady from the School for Marine Sciences at the University of Maine Darling Marine Center and Director of Research at Sea Grant. Um, and Esperanza Stanshoff, who's a climate change educator with the University of Maine Cooperative Extension and Sea Grant. We also were joined earlier on the phone um, by with Joe Salisbury, who's a professor of oceanography at the University of New Hampshire, and Bill Mook from Mook Sea Farms. Um, Thanks to all the folks who called with your comments and questions, great questions, and thanks to everyone who listened. Um, Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. On the second Friday of each month, you can still catch Talk of the Towns, a long-standing WERU public affairs program that inspired Coastal Conversations. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Natalie Springle, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from the Grand 